going to come to the next, uh, the next uh, beatitude. But one of the basic, I think, uh, foundational principles of our faith is that as Christians, as servant disciples of Jesus, we're called to conform ourselves uh, to God. We're commanded to pattern our attitudes, uh, our actions, after those of our Heavenly Father. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And having learned that the first four Beatitudes um, and learned about them, we now come to this fifth one that teaches us one of God's main imitable attributes, and that's to be merciful. Psalm 145 says, God is kind and merciful, slow to anger and full of love. And God's word tells us repeatedly that God loves mercy. Luke 1.78 tells us that Christ came because of the tender mercies of our God. 1 Chronicles 21 and 13 says that his mercy is very great. According to Titus 3 and 5, it says God saved us, not just because of his loving kindness that we saw this morning, but because of his mercy. And James 5 and 11 declares that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Ephesians 2, 4 says that God is rich in mercy. And Hebrews 4, 16 tells us that when we come to Jesus in prayer, we're coming to the throne of grace that we can receive mercy and find grace in time of trouble. We often use the words grace and mercy as if they were kind of interchangeable or the same, but they really reflect different meanings, don't they? Grace gives us what we don't deserve. And mercy withholds from us what we do deserve. Grace covers the offense of sin. Mercy removes the punishment for sin. Grace forgives. Grace forgives, but mercy restores. And we're called to demonstrate this, this characteristic, if you like, as Micah 6 and 8 says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. And this beatitude says, doesn't it? Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. You see, by virtue of his sacrifice on the cross and because of his righteousness being credited to us, we, we were to live transformed lives in practice because we've been transformed in the sight of God. 100% accepted by God's love and 100% righteous in his sight with all the power by the Holy Spirit available to us to live as God has called us to live. And, and that's the focus of the remaining four Beatitudes because they express how the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ is to be lived out in practice through the righteousness that's been given to us by God's grace through faith. And such disciples, as we'll see in the new year, are now to behave with purity in heart. They're to behave as peacemakers. They're to uh, suffer persecution gladly for righteousness' sake. And the four, first of these four remaining Beatitudes teaches us that such people are also to be merciful. I may have told you this story before, but a woman went to a pharmacy to get a new passport photograph. And when she looked at it, her face dropped. And she turned to the photographer and she said rather sharply, this isn't right. This photo doesn't do justice to how I look. And the photographer looked at the picture 
and then looked at the lady and said, Lady, you don't need justice, you need mercy. <laughs> the principal Hebrew word for mercy speaks of an emotional response to the needs of others. To feel the pain of another so deeply that we're compelled to do something about it. Bible commentator William Barclay defines it this way, he says, about mercy. To get inside someone's skin until we can see things with their eyes, think things with their mind, feel things with their feelings. We read in Matthew 14 when Jesus landed in a particular place, he saw a large crowd and it says he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. And the word compassion means that Jesus was so moved that it led him to do something about it. He saw the need and then he went into action. And mercy, in theory, is absolutely meaningless. Mercy must move us. And the emphasis in this beatitude is on those who are inclined to show mercy as a lifestyle. Not those who are merciful, you know, on an occasional sort of basis when they feel like it. Now we could attempt to define this word with other words, but the best way to understand the beatitude of mercy is to look at an example of it in action. Because mercy is more than an attitude. It's an attitude that prompts us to do something. John MacArthur writes, Mercy is not the silent, passive pity that never seems to help in a tangible way. Mercy is genuine compassion with a pure, unselfish attitude that reaches out to help. Of course, in Luke chapter 10, if you know the scriptures, we have the familiar parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, and we have a very obvious example of how this particular beatitude, mercy in action, uh, is to unfold in the life of a Macarius Christian. Macarius means blessed, happy, joyful, receiving the applause of heaven. Jesus describes in that parable how a Jewish man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers and he was stripped and he was beaten and they left him lying on the roadside half dead. A priest came by and passed by on the other side. A Levite came by. Another religious person did the same. Two religious leaders, both of which ignored this man's need. But then a very surprising thing happens in the, in the story. A Samaritan, a sworn enemy of the Jews, came by. And his response shows four dimensions of the beatitude of mercy, which Jesus said to his listeners, uh, after which Jesus said, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And in essence, Jesus said, good answer, right answer. Now, go and do likewise. First of all, in verse 33 in this parable, Jesus teaches us that mercy begins with what I would call God-empowered perception. That's always the first step in the unfolding, the outworking of this beatitude, mercy notices people in need. Remember how the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan, all three of them, it says, saw this wounded man, but only one perceived him as a person that he had some responsibility to help. Only one began the process of mercy. Both the priest and the Levite, religious people, have been coming from God's presence in the temple. Maybe they were returned from a big, I don't know, a big Christian conference in Jerusalem. But for some reason, they didn't allow God's presence to get through to them. They'd gone to the temple, they'd done their duty. But they'd either ignored God's laws that commanded his people to minister 
to the helpless and the foreigner and the stranger, or they were not allowing what God, uh, what they had learned of God's ways to impact their behavior. And I believe if we embrace this beatitude for ourselves, God's Spirit, God's Holy Spirit will give us a heightened, God-empowered sense to enable us to notice lonely people, grieving people, people who are hurting, people who need support and guidance. You see, worship is not just a Sunday thing. It's, it's a 24-7 thing. And in fact, James 1 and 27 says, religion or worship that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. One of the purposes of our weekly worship, like we're doing tonight, is for each of us to recharge by being challenged our relationship with God so that we're sensitive to his leading on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday till we're back here. And perhaps more often than we care to admit in our busyness, life's busy these days, isn't it? Especially coming up to Christmas, in our busyness, mercy is always in danger of being neglected because we all struggle from time to time with what has been called the disease of me. I don't know if you can read what Martin Luther King once said. The first question which the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the good Samaritan reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? We're thinking about. First of all, mercy sees people in need. And then mercy, secondly, responds internally. Jesus tells us in his parable that all three men saw the need, but only the Samaritan responded to the need. And you know, the people in Jesus' day believed that the seat of our emotions was not in the heart, but in the digestive area of the body. It seems strange to us, but that's how they viewed uh, these sort of things. And this idea is captured in Matthew 14 and 14 when it says, Jesus landed and saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. The word compassion means that he was so moved that his stomach churned for the need that was in front of him. Or literally, his bowels yearned to help the crowd. And you know, we still talk that way ourselves, don't we, when you think about it? When we're nervous, we say, I have butterflies in my stomach, right? We say things like, she hates my guts. Or I've got a gut feeling about this. But whatever body part picture you see or you use, Jesus was saying that this Samaritan was moved emotionally. He was moved internally by the needs of this wounded man. He was shaken up when he saw a man who was beaten down. And that's the next uh, the next step when it comes to embracing this beatitude, we first of all have to notice needy people. And then we should be moved internally with compassion for them. Someone has put it this way, mercy begins when your hurt, when your hurt comes into my heart. But mercy doesn't even stop there. It notices, yes. It feels and responds, yes. And then mercy responds externally. In other words, a merciful person does more than, than feel. They act practically in order to relieve the distress. In verse 34 of the parable, Jesus said this to the Samaritan, or that the Samaritan went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and then set him on his own beast, brought him to the inn, and took care of him. 
And more than that, of course, he handed over his credit card and he said to the innkeeper, whatever else he needs, charge it to me. It'll be okay. Mercy is more than a feeling, but it's not less than that. And mercy is more than just an attitude. It begins with a simple recognition that someone is hurting and then mercy moves from feeling to action. It's active compassion to those in need. It's love in action. In the play, uh, My Fair Lady, Eliza Doolittle is being courted by a man named Freddie who writes her love letters every day. Some of you know that experience, don't you? Yeah. Eliza's response to all of his love letters is a cry of frustration. Words, she says. Words, I'm so sick of words. Don't talk to me of stars burning above. If you're in love, show me. Don't talk uh, of love lasting through time. Make no undying vow. If you love me, show me and show me now. Genuine mercy is like true love. It's more than just words or vows. It's grace-filled love in action. 1 John 3 and 17 and 18 says, if someone who's supposed to be a Christian has enough money to live on and sees his brother in need but won't help him, how can God's love be in him? Let's stop just saying we love people. Let's show it by our actions. And as I said this morning, you know, it's great that we have a ministry here at this time of year that does just that with the Christmas food hampers and so on. Mercy is a visible thing. And mercy involves interrupting our schedule, even expending our finances if we have to. Mercy is meeting the need, not just feeling it, Mercy, you see, mercy isn't a spectator sport. It's not for bystanders. It's more than just noticing and feeling. It's doing something. I love this old hymn that says, The Savior of men came to seek and to save the souls who were lost to the good. His spirit was moved for the world which he loved with the boundless compassion of God. And still there are fields where the, where, where the laborers are few, and still there are souls without bread, and still eyes that weep where the darkness is deep, and still straying sheep to be led. Oh, is not the Christ midst the crowd of today whose questioning cries do not cease? And will he not show to the hearts that would know the things that belong to their peace? But how shall they hear if the preacher forbear or lack in compassionate zeal? Or how shall hearts move with the master's own love without his anointing and seal? It's not with might to establish the right, nor yet with the wise to give rest. The mind cannot show what the heart longs to know, nor comfort a people distressed. O oh, Savior of men, touch my spirit again, and grant that thy servant may be intense every day as I labor and pray, both instant and constant for thee, except I am moved with compassion. How dwelleth thy spirit in me, in word and in deed? Burning love is my need, and I know I can find it in thee. And perhaps the most significant thing in Jesus' parable is the fact that the man helping was actually a Samaritan. Jews hated their half-breed neighbors, the Samaritans. And history shows the feeling was mutual. But the man needing the Samaritan's help was a sworn enemy. He was a Jew. Most Samaritans would have excluded the, this Jewish enemy when it came to feelings or actions of mercy. And can I confess to you this evening that many times I've discovered that I'm just as bad because I've had a tendency 
at times to limit those people to whom I would show mercy to. Some of us see needs. We just shake our heads. Others of us feel bad for those in pain, but that quickly fades without us doing anything. But those who move to meet the needs of others demonstrate real mercy. And isn't it true that when we're hurt, when we're wronged, being merciful and forgiving isn't maybe the first thing that comes to our minds. Instead, our first response is to try and get back with those who betray us. Reminds me of the story of the man who went to the doctor and he was told he had rabies. Can you imagine? The man immediately took out a piece of paper and a pen and started writing feverishly. And the, the doctor thought he was writing his will. So he said to him, he said, well, hang on a minute now. No need to write your will. You're not going to die. The man responded, doctor, I'm not writing my will. I'm making a list of people I want to bite. I've come to learn that God's not pleased with such behavior and I've had to ask forgiveness and a more tender heart towards those in need time and time again. We're called to feel and act mercifully even towards people that we don't like. Even towards people who don't like us. And we're called to be merciful even towards our enemies. Luke 6, Jesus said, if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. But love your enemies. Do good to them. Then your reward will be great. Be merciful, he said, just as your father is. The more we understand how merciful God has been to us, the more merciful we'll be towards others. Because mercy comes from mercy. And so our mercy for others will come in proportion to our realization of God's mercy towards us. When God asks for a record of our mercy on the day of judgment, he'll not be asking for a, a punched time card that will evidence X number of hours of mercy during our time as his disciple. Instead, God will ask for our spiritual medical charts. And he'll read the evidences of how we trusted him as our, as our divine physician, how the medicine of his word and the therapy of his Holy Spirit took effect in our lives because we relied on them to heal us instead of our natural unmerciful disposition. You see, mercy is not a product of nature. As you, know, you watch a few minutes of a, of, a, of a wildlife documentary, you'll see that there's not much mercy sometimes between animals. Mercy doesn't start with us, with man. Mercy has its beginnings in the person and the character of a holy God. Because when we come to this fifth beatitude, we've had to go through the first four. The people who are merciful are those who have realized their spiritual bankruptcy, who have mourned over their sinfulness, who have meekly come before God knowing they can offer nothing. They have nothing to offer except the very sins that they need forgiven of. And they've demonstrated a hunger and a thirst for righteousness that they know they don't possess. And by the way, when you became a Christian, you didn't move into the category of the undeserving to the deserving. You're still undeserving of God's mercy and his kindness. And so am I. But there's a cycle here. We cry out for mercy. And God gives it. He transforms our hearts. We become merciful. We practice mercy. He pours out more mercy. So let me ask you as we draw to a close tonight, who in your little world needs mercy? Spouse, maybe? Bellious prodigal child? 
a co-worker, maybe someone who's in church tonight? Are you bearing a grudge, maintaining bitterness, seeking even revenge silently, or holding someone in emotional uh, hostage? The call of Christ is to exercise mercy by forgiveness and to release that person or persons from your sentence of condemnation or indebtedness towards you. Jesus, as Jesus told the story, he emphasized that all three men happened, it says, on the man by the side of the road. No one planned on seeing him there. No one got up that day and said, I wonder if I'll have a chance to be merciful today. The situation just happened, and that's the way it always is. It happens when we travel down the road of life, when we turn a corner, and there we see a beaten man, stripped and bloody and unconscious. We didn't plan to be there. We didn't plan to see him. So it now becomes a matter of, what will we do? Will we show mercy? Lloyd Ogilvy, who was a pastor in the White House many years ago to the president, he said in one of the books that he written, we constantly meet people who need us and whom we need. People with needs are not burdens. They're gifts from God to give away what he has given to us. And remember Jesus told his story in answer to a simple question, who is my neighbor? But the real question is not who is my neighbor, but the real question is what kind of neighbor am I going to be? Note the final words of Jesus to this curious lawyer who asked the question. He said, uh, go and do likewise. Mercy demands that we do something. It may be back straining. It may be time consuming. It may involve spending money, involvement in the lives of others. It's, it's actually lighting a candle in a dark room. Mercy is Christianity with its sleeves rolled up and its work boots on. And this beatitude is based on the law of, uh, of reciprocalness. Those who show mercy will obtain mercy. Like forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given unto you. It's reciprocal. The world can't see mercy in the abstract. And if you and I don't show mercy, where in the world is it going to be found? And I want to challenge you to ask God to help you answer that question even now. And then to pray, asking him to help you to extend mercy. And you know, if you have trouble, remember what God has done for you. Remember how merciful God has been to you. Because the parable of the good Samaritan is more than a picture of mercy. It's a picture of what God has done on our behalf. God saw us. He noticed us in our miserable lost condition of sin. He saw us wounded and dying in sin. And he took pity on us. He took compassion on us. He was moved with compassion. He knew that sin had rendered us spiritually dead and helpless and even hopeless. And he knew that he was the only one that had the power to bring about a remedy. And so he showed mercy. And he came. And as we celebrate the Advent season, heaven coming to earth, the Christ child being born in the manger, you might as well say he got inside our skin. He became like us and participated in our sufferings to the point where he died on the cross for our sin. 
And all the mercy that God ever will have on man, he has already had when Christ died. That's the totality of his mercy. There couldn't be any more. And God can now act towards us in grace because he's already had mercy on us. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me and there my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Amen. The mercy flood was turned on at the cross. And on the basis of the work of Christ to satisfy the justice of God, God was free to pour out his mercy on his own, on you and I. The merciful person, the person who lives out this beatitude, is truly merciful. Filled with God's mercy. And Warren Wiersbe, the great commentator, summed it up like this. Mercy is a bridge that God, God built to mankind and mercy is a bridge we build towards others. So I hope you'll take this message and uh, the other message about righteousness tonight to heart and you'll live them out in the everyday because that's where the rubber hits the road as I said earlier. It's in the, the, the everyday and sometimes we're so caught up in ourselves we don't even see the need of those around us. 